Radio. The Future of Learning by Carl Schmude at the Christopher Dawson Center for Cultural Studies 2017 Colloquium. Let me uh, begin by citing a speech which our namesake, Christopher Dawson, gave in 1951 when he received the special award, the Christian Culture Award, from a Canadian university in Ontario. The acceptance speech was called Ploughing a Lone Furrow, and Dawson drew attention to the tradition of private, independent study, which he himself had followed, and which characterised English research and writing in the past so that it complemented the work of professional historians. Now Dawson noted, and I quote, that there's no longer any room for this tradition, he said, in the modern world, where modern methods of coordinated research combine with social and economic conditions to make it impossible. He confessed that if in his lifetime he had had to follow his own line of studies and plough a lone furrow, it was not out of choice or because he could dispense with the help of other scholars, but because the subject to which he had devoted himself, the study of Christian culture, had no place in modern university studies. Now, in this paper, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to focus on three things. First, to sketch the contribution of the independent scholar to the world of learning in the past, and more broadly, to the world of culture. Secondly, to reflect on changes in university and academic life that have affected the capacity and even the existence of the independent scholar. And thirdly, to highlight, as I go through, the potential for the independent scholar in today's culture and institutional environment, given that the university has now come to dominate and even monopolise the world of learning and areas of vocational training. I'll be concentrating on recent centuries, particularly from the 18th century when various scholars were working and writing outside of universities. I'm thinking of such towering figures as Samuel Johnson and Edward Gibbon in the 18th century and Charles Darwin in the 19th. These men were influenced by their Christian upbringing and there were also those of Jewish background, such as Karl Marx in the 19th century, Sigmund Freud in the 20th. In addition to these prominent figures, there was a second and substantial rank of writers and thinkers who would have carried the conventional title of man of letters. Evelyn Waugh once described his father as a man of letters, and he noted that this category was now almost extinct like that of the maiden art, he said. A fascinating study by John Gross called The Rise and Fall of the Man of Letters revealed how this cultural figure emerged in the 19th century as a literary scholar and was later transmuted into an author in general, particularly in literature. The 19th and early 20th centuries were the age of this sort of independent scholar who combined literary composition and criticism with practical journalism and writing for a wider public. One thinks of such cultural critics as Thomas Carlyle and Matthew Arnold, or at an even more popular level, writers like G.K. Chesterton, who despite seeing himself as never more than a journalist, 
produced in the midst of his vast output some acclaimed works of literary criticism, notably two books on Charles Dickens and a penetrating study of the Victorian age in literature. The term public intellectuals could be applied to such writers today, but I think that might convey a misleading idea of the cultural purpose which the man of letters served and his role in the broad dissemination of learning and the shaping of communal understanding. As John Gross notes, in the past, most English critics were fortified by the idea that they were the guardians and interpreters of one of the world's great literary traditions. Such a notion, that of being the guardian of a tradition and seeing traditions as at once nourishing and sustaining in the life of a culture, would strike contemporary elites, I think, as not just quaint, but outrageously wrong-headed, given the prevailing scepticism and even disgust that most seem to have for the traditions and ideals of Western civilization. It's somewhat reminiscent of the description by John Ruskin, the 19th century art critic, of the entire output of Fleet Street, the centre of British journalism at that time. Ruskin referred to this output as, quote, so many square leagues of dirtily printed falsehood. <laughs> well, some might think little's changed in the hurly-burly world of today's journalism. More recently, in the 20th century, there have been some notable scholars whose works, often popular in their readership, earned academic respect as well. Historians such as Lewis Mumford, an acknowledged authority on cities and technology, and Barbara Tuckman, winner of two Pulitzer Prizes for books on World War I and American-China relations in wartime. These scholars had no regular academic posts and often no university connection at all. They were in the main independent, like Christopher Dawson, whose only academic appointments were in his early years at Exeter University and in his closing years at Harvard when he was appointed as the inaugural Professor of Catholic Studies in the Harvard Divinity School. Now, as an independent scholar, Dawson himself contributed to historical understanding with pioneering works of scholarship and analysis. In 1932, for example, he published The Making of Europe, a work of groundbreaking importance. It focused on the Dark Ages as a period of silent growth that paved the way for the extraordinary cultural flowering of the 12th and 13th centuries, a flowering that could not have occurred without this long period of painful and unappreciated preparation. Aldous Huxley, in weighing Dawson's achievement in this book, The Making of Europe, stated, the Dark Ages lose their darkness, take on form and significance. Dawson probed the roots and the runners beneath the soil of the society. He saw below the surface chaos a creative process at work, the germination of a new Christian culture. He challenged the prevailing view of the, middle, of the Dark Ages, conditioned as it was by the rationalist Enlightenment, 
and expressed by Voltaire, who believed that the Dark Ages represented or presented the historian with, quote, the barren prospect of a thousand years of stupidity and barbarism. Tell us what you really think, Voltaire. <laughs> By comparison with the creations of the 15th century, which Voltaire said vindicate the greatness of the human spirit. Dawson's singular achievement, I think, was to show how these two periods of human history, what Dawson himself called the long winter of the Dark Ages, on the one hand, and the cultural spring of the 12th and 13th centuries on the other were profoundly connected. Not a simple black and white contrast, as if the renaissance of the 12th and 13th centuries had come out of nowhere. Well, the making of Europe was a product of years of quiet research and private reflection on Dawson's part, the devotion of the individual independent scholar. Despite his reservations about scholarly isolation, which I noted at the outset, it seems to me clear that the freedom Dawson enjoyed, both intellectually and in the time and scope it gave him for concentrated work, played a decisive part in the originality of his perspectives in two respects. Firstly, it heightened his ability to penetrate the inner life of our culture and not merely recognise and record its external manifestations. And secondly, it gave him a greater capacity for synthesis, for bringing together ideas and insights and understandings in a way that academic specialisation now forbids. The independent scholar can strive for an integration of knowledge and a coherent worldview that is much harder to achieve in a present-day university setting. Well, the independent scholar, represented by Dawson and others, has now all but vanished. And this reflects not just a loss of independence. For independence is not an end in itself. It has an ultimate purpose, and that is to furnish the freedom to explore the truth. And when found, to embrace it and to cherish it. Occasionally, the independent scholar pops up in newspapers and magazines, however. One thinks, for example, of the Australian journalist Greg Sheridan, who has the temerity to venture at times outside his designated domain of foreign affairs and talk about issues of culture and literary figures, such as the Tasmanian novelist Christopher Koch. Or, as another example, Peter Craven, a highly knowledgeable literary critic who writes frequently for newspapers and not just academic journals. Another variant, I think, of the modern independent scholar is one who has intermittent links with universities, occasionally as a writer in residence, such as Australia's poet laureate Les Murray. Or the American literary critic Joseph Pierce, who's written biographies of Tolkien and Chesterton and others. There are also, of course, the refugees from universities, like the British philosopher Roger Scruton, who regards himself, because of his social conservatism, as academically unemployable. But he continues to be a prolific writer, in spite of, or perhaps because of, his self-imposed scholarly exile. And finally, there are those who qualify as independent scholars 
indeed men of letters, who have been freelance writers most of their working life, such as the British author Piers Paul Reid. Reid is primarily a novelist, as I'm sure you'd know, but he's also written authoritative histories and biographies. And many of you would recall his best-selling book, Alive, the account of the survivors of a plane crash in the Andes, which was later made into a movie. I once asked one of the most frequently travelling academic friends of mine whether he'd ever read uh, Alive. And he said, I did. I read it over the Andes on one occasion. <laughs> I shuddered and he said, I'd had half a bottle of scotch before I got on the plane. <laughs> but anyhow, such specimens are few and far between. Now, an important mark, I think, of the passing of the independent scholar is the virtual disappearance of the academic eccentric. The eccentric scholar within universities as well as outside them. I entered universities in the early 1970s and it was still possible to find the academic eccentric at that time. An individual who was distinctive, irredeemably untidy, incurably absent-minded, and peerlessly unself-conscious. Indeed, that was part of the definition, I think, of the eccentric, that he thought everyone else was unusual, not himself. Only last year, for example, the Oxford historian Professor James Campbell died. He was renowned, if that's a word, for being an absent-minded professor, such as lighting his pipe, and then a few moments later, placing it in his pocket. <laughs> well, what else would you do with a lit pipe if you didn't want it to go out? If we go back to the 19th century, we recall, of course, another Oxford Don, the famously eccentric Dr William Spooner, who became renowned for his Spoonerisms, of transposing the first letter of two words. As when he knocked on the door of the Dean's office and inquired of confused secretary, is the bean dizzy? <laughs> or he reprimanded a student in these terms. You have hissed all my mystery lectures, when you thought he'd said missed all my history lectures. You were caught fighting a liar in the quad, when he meant lighting a fire in the quad. And having tasted two worms for wasted two terms, you will leave by the next town drain. <laughs> Actually, the next down train from Oxford to London. Now, apart from his wonderful muddling of words, Spooner also displayed a legendary absent-mindedness, as when he invited an Oxford Don to tea on one occasion to welcome, as he said, Stanley Casson, our new archaeology fellow. But, sir, the man replied, I am Stanley Casson. Puzzled, Spooner then said, well, never mind, come all the same. <laughs> In the 20th century, one of the most endearing of eccentric scholars was Sir John Squire. He was a poet, a critic, founding editor of the 20th century journal London Mercury, which showed a distinct boldness in providing an outlet for new writers. Squire had a strong influence on British culture outside of universities. An independent voice, 
He opposed literary modernism between the world wars, for which he earned the scorn of writers like Virginia Woolf and T.S. Eliot. Squire was also an historian, but his approach was unconventional, the mark of an independent scholar. This was shown by his interest in historical speculation. He thought that conjecturing about the past, of asking questions beginning with if or suppose or if only, was not at odds with what had actually happened. Rather, it offered new ways of reflecting on the past and it fostered intuitive understanding and insight as intellectual tools. His interest in historical conjectures led him to edit a collection of, of uh, essays of alternative history called If It Had Happened Otherwise, published in 1931. And in this work, various contributors speculated on the course of history if certain events had turned out differently. So G.K. Chesterton, for example, wondered if Don John of Austria had married Mary, Queen of Scots. They would thereby have extinguished Scottish Calvinism and by serving jointly on the English throne, arrested the Reformation and kept England a Catholic country. Squire himself contemplated the impact on English literature if in 1930 it had been discovered that Bacon really did write Shakespeare. And he followed through all the clues in his essay, which is amusing as well as revealing, I think. Now, no doubt now these can sound simply facetious and frivolous, but such conjectures can be illuminating. They provoke the imagination to look at alternatives and probe the inner and underlying realities of human history. And they challenge the claim we often hear nowadays that in supporting a fashionable cause, we will end up on the right side of history, as if history is predestined and predictable when it is so plainly unpredictable and seemingly arbitrary except for those who, as Christians believe, discern in the unfolding of history a divine meaning and a providential purpose. The notion of being on the right side of history seems to me a lazy and self-serving assumption, which injects a false authority into any debate. It's too easily invoked now, I think, on behalf of major social and political changes such as the same-sex marriage proposals, which should rely on substantive arguments, not spurious historical summons. Now, no doubt many of the stories about academic eccentrics are apocryphal. But even so, the fact that they seem believable and have often been retold resonates with the need for the scholar to cultivate a certain detachment from the obsessive concerns of everyday reality. As G.K. Chesterton once noted, absence of mind is really only the presence of mind on something else. Now, th this, is, this is an excuse I have proffered to my wife on occasions, <laughs> to no avail, ladies and gentlemen, but I still think it's valid. The point about the absent-minded professor is that he was absorbed in his own world of learning 
undistracted by competing interests or the trivia of everyday life. In particular, he was largely immune to the insinuations of conformism. Nor was the eccentricity of the scholar an end in itself. No doubt such a man, and it was usually a man, but on occasion a woman, such as the Cambridge philosopher Elizabeth Anscombe, a cigar-smoking mother of eight, who wore a monocle. No doubt the eccentric scholar did provide special moments of frustration for spouses, and certainly I know for university administrators. But the Campbells and the Spooners and the Anscombs were not simply eccentrics. They were academic eccentrics. That is, their oddness was first and foremost of the mind, which translated comprehensively into the rest of their lives, most conspicuously their dress and demeanour. And they were often impressive scholars and writers and teachers. Their eccentricity was the expression of a distinctive culture, a culture of curiosity, a culture of absorption in learning, and learning that was self-propelled, not dictated by university committees or government bureaus or corporate entities. In the words of Samuel Johnson, curiosity is man's first great passion and his last. The seeming remoteness of scholars, their lack of social normality and conformity, has at once reflected and reinforced a spirit of intellectual detachment. There's something unworldly about the academic eccentric, which has helped to detach the scholar from the obsessive fashions and distractions of an over-organised society and protect a perspective of objectivity. Unfortunately, this organisation now threatens to engulf academic life and militates against an, uh, an independent scholar within universities, making far less likely the acceptance, I think, and even the survival of the academic eccentric. There are various factors that have had an impact in the midst of this over-organisation, either contributing to it or flowing from it, factors which cast doubt on the performance of the present-day university, raising questions about its educational condition and value in the current institutional form. Well, what are these factors, all of which have affected the independent scholar both within and outside the university? I think they fall into two broad categories. Some are practical and organisational. What has happened to the university as an institution in our time? And some are intellectual and cultural, and I would argue spiritual at their core. What's happened to the academic mind and intellectual and spiritual culture? What animates the university, in other words, or ought to? Together, I think they've conspired to erode confidence in the university as a centre of learning in our society. A development that is even more serious because of the extent to which the world of learning has come to be, as I mentioned earlier, almost entirely absorbed by the university. So that learning itself is now deeply institutionalised 
and subject to cultural and political pressures and sanctions <coughs> that have deep implications for the world of culture as well as learning. Well, I mentioned there are practical and intellectual changes that have made universities less hospitable to independent scholarship. Let me begin with the practical ones. The first, I think, is the clash of cultures that has taken place in universities, arising from the penetration of a scholarly culture by an alien culture, a culture of managerial supervision and accountability that dwells on structures and processes and insists on a uniformity of approach to scholarly work. It imposes tests that are based not on scholarly criteria, the play of ideas and the quest for truth and wisdom, but rather on the bureaucratic measurement of processes whose designated aim is compliance, even when it's disguised by the invoking of words such as quality, as in quality ordered or quality assurance. Now, no doubt the university, as an institution, has always been subject to market and managerial influences, as in the Middle Ages when it was providing, preparing people for, uh, especially for ecclesiastical office, or in the age of colonial expansion for imperial leadership and service. The difference now, I think, is that the actual life of learning has become invaded and learning is thought to be dubious and indefensible without vocational direction or political regulation and manipulation. The politics of bureaucratic surveillance are supplanting the culture of intellectual appetite and scholarly accountability. There's a second practical change I'll just mention briefly, and that's the massive expansion of higher education which has taken place in recent decades. This has intensified pressure, both time and teaching pressure, on academic staff and reduced the capacity not only for research, but at a more fundamental level, I think, for thinking. So that the mental space for scholarship and the leisure to carry it out leisure in the classical and medieval sense of a condition of intellectual freedom and reflection rather than of utilitarian relaxation. That mental space and leisure have been lessened. The huge expansion of universities has also led to a proliferation of courses and degrees, which reflect on the one hand the intense specialisation of academic life and on the other, the claims of vocational preparation. There's been a severe narrowing of intellectual focus, which detracts from the breadth and integration of understanding that should characterise the scholar. The main justification for mass education at the university level in Australia and elsewhere, is, as we know, has been utilitarian, related to employment and income potential. It has not been connected in any articulated way to a higher and wider purpose, such as to prepare people for citizenship and democratic participation, preparation of citizens, or even to heighten the intellectual and cultural benefits of learning. Yet the assumptions that have governed employment and income prospects arising from a university education are now coming under scrutiny 
as the link between a university degree and the earning of an attractive income is no longer assured. Prior to the recent federal budget, which foreshadowed a higher student share of university fees, there was debate about the growing rate of unemployment among graduates. A workforce economist, Ian Lee, from the University of Western Australia, commented, I quote, the graduate degree premium has been eroding for some time, he said. Private returns to higher education are still positive, but they are no longer what they once were. Now, if these doubts grow, the mass popularity of universities may decline. We may begin as a society to question the social status of a university degree and the idea that universities are good for everyone. While the prospect of universal higher education, complementing education at the primary and secondary levels, might flatter egalitarian sensibilities and yearnings, it reflects the mistake, I think, that treating people equally has come to mean treating them identically. I speak as the father of a plumber, as well as the father of a university lecturer. At the same time, it's important for a society to recognise that it needs well-formed elites, especially spiritual and intellectual elites, in order to cultivate leadership qualities and sustain popular understanding and confidence that are necessary for the life of a culture. James Macaulay, who is readily identified as a son of this island, though an adopted one, given that he was born in Sydney, stressed this need in 1976, shortly before he died. And he said this, All societies depend on the presence of elites, which are, with whatever failures, limitations and delinquencies natural to the human condition, bodies of people with superior discipline capability of responsibility and leadership, sources of morale and integrity. The formation of elites, Macaulay noted, hinges on the influence of home and school rooted in tradition. And he identified four matrices in Australia in which the elites have been traditionally nurtured. Three of them of religious origin, Anglican, non-conformist, evangelical and Catholic, and then the fourth from the humanist, rationalist tradition. It seems to me that these matrices, hugely weakened now, these fonts of intellectual insight, moral integrity and cultural and political leadership, were also fundamental to the production of scholars, and especially independent scholars for it gave them not only the inspiration for intellectual work, but also the discipline and desire to serve wider communities. Christopher Dawson was sensitive to the historical significance of a spiritual elite, the priesthood. In one of his Gifford lectures at the University of Edinburgh, he showed the intellectual and cultural roles the priesthood played in various societies across the centuries. There was an intellectual foundation to the priesthood which underpinned its culture-building contributions. It was a learned class which had mastered a body of knowledge and it served as the cradle for the intellectual elites of secular modernity.
The priesthood helped to stabilise societies by its preservation of sacred rituals, which gave opportunities for the enactments of our spiritual nature in a material world. Modern secular society, of course, shuts out any religiously inspired office and would recognise no connection. In fact, an antipathy between learning and religious faith. But it finally has to reckon with the consequences of such an exclusion. The price of banning religious elites with a different philosophy and scale of values from that of secular elites is to open up a vast social and political void that has immense implications for individual health and cultural integrity. This is what happens with the slaying of a transcendental vision and value system. Chesterton once said that poets are those who rise above the people by understanding them. Poets are those who rise above the people by understanding them. And an intellectual elite needs to be of the same disposition. It does not suggest, should not suggest, social superiority or political dominance, though we know this is not easy to avoid. It certainly should not imply superior behaviour. It suggests rather insight and sympathy, an affinity with the hungers and needs of ordinary people, and a capacity to capture these in the forms of the culture, its social institutions and its laws and its moral ideals, as well as its imaginative expressions, such as symbols and rituals and poetry, art, music. This capacity should be enhanced by being free of institutional pressures to yield to the prevailing winds of elitist opinion and also free of the pressure to publish or perish, which imposes on scholars an imperative to write and speak continually, even when they might have little or nothing to say. There's a final practical issue I'd mention, and that is the quality control which is now under pressure in the world of scholarship. I'll mention two examples briefly, both touching on the integrity and credibility of scholarly publication. One is the growth of electronic publishing as increasingly the main channel by which scholarly findings are reported. Traditional print publications, both books and journals, involve considerable time and production processes, which had the effect of enforcing delays and providing inbuilt opportunities for review and safeguards of quality. By contrast, the electronic world, as we well know, allows anyone to publish anything and distribute it immediately, at times more quickly than one would have wished hitting that send button accidentally or too early. At the high end of scholarly publishing, of electronic publishing, these can be controlled by paywalls and password access. But I think the nature of the medium makes quality control more difficult. There is, however, a positive side, and that is the very ease and cheapness of electronic communication, which has ushered in the era of self-publishing and afforded a new freedom and flexibility 
to the independent scholar. So while economic factors account for the demise of the independent scholar, that it's no longer financially viable for so many people to pursue such a vocation without the support of an institution, or more rarely, a patron, such as I was interested to read the, the late Bill Leake enjoyed in the early years of his artistic and cartooning career, the countervailing factor of communication's freedom and flexibility based on electronic systems and devices like the iPad and iPhone now gives scholars a degree of independence from institutions and perhaps especially libraries that was unimaginable a few decades ago. A second issue touching quality control is editorial and peer review, a mechanism that has traditionally ensured the dependability of scholarly publications. This is no longer as certain as it was. There is an increasing incidence of corruption of the system demonstrated by flawed research papers of various kinds involving fabrication of data and of peer reviews, doctoring of images and the citing of imaginary editorial boards. For example, a UK parliamentary inquiry into the integrity of university research heard evidence of increasing scientific misconduct, which has given rise to a growing number of corrections and retractions. Well, apart from the practical changes to universities and academic culture, which have implications for the independent scholar, there are intellectual and cultural obstacles as well. A number of factors are limiting and distorting intellectual independence, particularly within universities. Most of them are familiar to you all, but just mention, let me mention them quickly. One is the politicisation of the university in its academic programs, particularly in the fashionable areas of the humanities and social sciences, infected by identity politics. In the areas of race and gender especially, though curiously, not as much as was the case in the past, it seems to me, in the area of social class, presumably because the people protesting are now among the wealthiest sections of society. There is, among at least a vocal proportion of academic staff, a tight uniformity of political attitudes, a form of compliance, one might say, essentially of the political left, which are hostile to the traditions and ideals of Western civilization, stigmatizing them as backward and oppressive. Universities have come to be constrained by an ideological straitjacket raising serious issues about their reputation for academic freedom, ideological advocacy replacing the contest of ideas. A second factor, somewhat related to that one, is the rising atmosphere of intimidation, mob-based at times and media-promoted, at times physically threatening, ushering in a new generation of campus protests and struggles over free speech. This is especially so in the United States, but it's now emerging in Australia as well, as was shown in 2015 at Sydney University when a visiting pro-Israeli speaker was interrupted by a violent protest while giving a public address on campus. The leading academic involved, Professor Jake Lynch, is director of the university's Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies. 
And presumably his practice was designed as a, as a direct, innovative form of pedagogy on how to advance peace through heightening conflict. <laughs> Certainly, in the light of my own memory, conditioned as it is by the student activism that I engaged in in the 1960s, the present era seems rather restrained. The difference now, however, I think is that the rise of identity politics among intellectual and media elites reflects a new form of intellectual conditioning that is taking root in universities and elsewhere. It's not easy to hope for a recovery of what the Australian poet Vincent Buckley once called the great tradition of intellectual chivalry in Western culture. The approach now being adopted is a new version of Voltairean wisdom, once wryly expressed by Ronald Reagan, that modern liberals, he said, will defend to the death your right to agree with them. <laughs> Among the ironies of our time, the old liberal value of free speech is now falling to conservatives to defend. While liberals lurch towards totalitarian controls, conservatives embrace a libertarian autonomy. Both bleak, bleak prospects, I would have thought, for Australian society. We suffer from an extraordinary readiness to being offended. In fact, the offence industry represents something of a rebirth of manufacturing in Australia. <laughs> a Canadian journalist, Denise O'Leary, recently commented, in the new order, a high level of suggestibility and a low level of common sense will be important survival skills. A more subtle and insidious form of uh, intellectual conditioning now taking place is the notion of collective guilt which is giving rise not only to apologies for the behaviour of our ancestors, but to the removal of any signs of their historical existence, such as changing the names of buildings. I could talk further about that, but let me just uh, conclude and return to Sir John Squire, an independent scholar, certainly, and an eccentric. But he was also a cricket tragic. He formed a cricket club, cricket team, which played occasional village games, they were aptly called the Invalids, and their cricketing performances, so quintessentially English, are immortalised in the social satire by the Scottish author A.G. Macdonald called England, Their England, which includes a caricature of Sir John Squire. Now, in one Invalids game, Squire's side was fielding, and the batsman at the crease skied a ball. It went up an enormous distance, and Squire screamed out, Leave it to Carstairs. The ball rose and rose in the sky and eventually came down with a heavy thud on the grass. No one caught it. Squire then realised Carstairs had died the year before. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, we can't leave it to Carstairs. The independent scholar lives a life of relative isolation but his survival is likely to depend on some measure of community and solidarity with other scholars and with intellectually sympathetic institutions and organisations, both in person and with electronic assistance. I'm heartened by the presence in Australia of the Christopher Dawson Centre here in Hobart and of Campion College in Sydney, to both of which our host 
David Daintree has made vital contributions. And I publicly say again uh, how grateful we are to you, Archbishop Porteous, for creating the, uh, the Christopher Dawson Centre. It's very nice to have Paul Morrissey as a president of Campion here in the audience. These places offer a spiritual and intellectual home to independent scholarship and learning. As Dawson himself recognised as an historical reality, he said, every advance in education has been prepared by a preliminary period in which the pioneers work outside the recognised academic cadres. This was so at the beginning of the European University and in the beginnings of humanism. While today the diffusion of leisure throughout the affluent society offers new opportunities for free intellectual activity. At the same time, of course, Dawson realised the importance of individual friendships and support. Conversation, he said, is more than bread and meat to me. I cannot exist without it. Karl Marx, that well-known independent scholar, put it well, or almost did, when trying to rally the proletariat. And I have no doubt he would have apologised for anticipating the fiendish puns perpetrated by BBC Radio's Frank Muir and Dennis Norden. But Karl Marx went so close to saying, working scholars of the world unite, you have nothing to lose but your brains. Thank you very much. That was Karl Schmude with The Future of Learning. This presentation was part of the Christopher Dawson Centre for Cultural Studies 2017 Colloquium on the theme Liberal Education, Restoring the Notion for Education as the Basis for Living the Good Life, which was hosted in Hobart, Australia. For more talks, interviews and shows, visit cradio.org. Dot AU.